You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This series is um, about church history, which means it's not sacred history. And I know that I've said this every week, I've premised it every week. And all I, all I mean by that is we, uh, when, we, when we deal with church history, we're, 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 we're in our own fallibility. We're in the world of interpretation without the promise of the Holy Spirit in the same way the Holy Spirit is promised to the church. Uh, and I know that sounds a little odd, but just, if you think about it, um, uh, God promises that he will be with us in the interpretation of sacred history, of redemptive history, uh, the message of the cross. Uh, and here, uh, we trust his providence and, and how, we, how we work through it. We've worked through two units uh, so far. Uh, we have, this is our third, we have two more to go after this. And uh, then, then you'll know everything you need to for the rest of your life about this subject. So, <laughs> there are no more questions, right? Uh, the goal here is what should we know? I mean, obviously we're talking about massive amounts of time and massive theological questions and, and intrigue even. Uh, with the early church, um, we, we walked away with a very uh, sort of pointed message of what is, why the authority and reliability of Scripture matters, why the person and work of Christ matter, and how do we understand our need for salvation and grace as the early church struggled with its relationship to Judaism the Greeks and the Greek philosophy and the Roman world. With the Middle Ages, we walked away with a set of similar questions. And I think that's what, by the time we get to the end, maybe our numbers will thin out because you'll be like, well, Wallace, it seems we're coming back to the same points over and over. And it's true, Christianity tends to do that, right? But here we, we see where the, the great work of Christ becomes, under, what is the atonement, justification, and how is it communicated? What are the extent and limits of ecclesiastical authority and the relationship between faith and reason? Come on in. These are the great questions. There's some, come on in. There's seat here, there's seat there. Um, hey. the, these, are the, these are the great uh, questions that we inherit from the Middle Ages. Well, today we're going to look at the Reformation and then uh, the following week, we're going to look at mo- modernity and some issues that come out of the modern church. We'll take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about the 21st century. So that's where we are. I want to start today by looking at a map. I want you to just take a look at this map and try to, under, and, and we're going to try to figure out in the next few minutes how we get to this map. Uh, this map shows you the divisions of Europe in the early uh, 15th, well, by the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century. And uh, what you see is, this is Reformation Europe. This is where we're going to conclude the class, but I want to start here. This is where it's going to end, okay? This is not what Europe looked like at the beginning of the 1500s, but by the end of the 1500s, this is what Europe looks like. Uh, at least as a, ma- as a religious map, right? The green countries are your Catholic countries, your Lutheran country. I don't know what color that is, but it's kind of a pinkish color. Uh, the Calvinist influence is in the purple, and then the Anglican uh, influence is in the blue. All right, 
And then you can, in the Eastern Orthodox, as we move further toward the East, right? What can we tell about this? Um, what, what can we, what, can, what does this map tell us? Well, not much until we, until we work through this material. It doesn't tell us much yet. But here's what we do know. Europe of 1600 is not Europe of 1500. Within a hundred year window, the thousand years we looked at last week is over and a new kind of world has been born. A new kind of reality has come into existence. And that's what we want to try to figure out. And you can see the shading. Southern France is a mixed bag, uh, et cetera. England is sort of a mixed bag. How do we get here? We get here first by talking about Latin, which you all know. The donum superadditum. The donum superadditum. We get here because of a theological problem. The Reformation can be studied many different ways. It can be studied as an economic, socially, economically. The Marxists have interpretation of it. There are multiple interpretations. The Reformation is fundamentally a theological problem. That's it. It is fundamentally a question of how we are interpreting our relationship to God and what, how it's going to be interpreted. To get at why it matters, to get at why it becomes an issue, I want to start here. The Donum Super Additum. This was a belief inherited through the Middle Ages that God gave a supernatural gift of righteousness to aid the pre-fallen image bearers, Adam and Eve. All right? It was a gift that allowed uh, our, our ancestors to please God. Does that make sense? It, it gave them the ability to please God, to make uh, their righteousness before God acceptable. It was a gift of righteousness. This gift, however, so the added gift, right, which I failed to put a quote on at the end so it doesn't go on forever. The added gift, this gift was lost after the fall. So, according to the medieval church, according to the late medieval church, the gift, the, the, the ability to please God, to please God as a created being was lost with our fall into sin, with our ancestors fall into sin. The image of God, however, was retained. So we lost the ability to please God. We retained the, the mark of God on us in our nature. All right. Why are we starting here? Because medieval theology, the medieval church, which we would have known no other theology at this time, let's be clear, unless we followed maybe a heretical sect or something. I mean, that would have been interesting, I guess. But if this is all we have, this is all we have. The, 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 the Catholic Church, the church had a way in which this gift is restored. This is the basic structure of the sacraments. How is our gift of God restored prior to the Reformation and even today in, 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 in Catholic teaching? It's restored by our participation in the sacramental order of the institution of the church. Okay. So the restoration of grace, so to speak, takes place through participation in the sacraments. And this is cradle to grave. This is, this is from the time you're born, this isn't a voluntary society. This, this isn't a good democratic religion, right? You're born into this. You're under the cope of heaven. 
How does it work? Well, at baptism, you see, the grace of God is infused into a baby or a person, an older person who's being baptized. And what does this baptism do? It replaces this. Baptism makes this restored, so to speak. It puts it back in its place. This gift of being able now to please God is restored. How then is it maintained, right? Whether you're in France or Germany or Italy or Poland, Poland doesn't exist, or England, it's maintained through participation in the other sacraments. You take the Eucharist, you are confirmed into the church. You, well, we'll get to that one. <laughs> There's the anointing of the sick at the time of, of death uh, or in peril, serious health, peril with your health. And then the two uh, individuated sacraments, marriage or holy orders, the, the taking of a, of a spouse or joining the, or an order of the church. Okay. What about that middle one there, penance? The Reformation is going to hinge on that question because penance is simply repentance. What does it mean to repent? Because here's the rub, right? You're baptized into the church. The gift of grace is restored unto you, but you sin again, and then you might sin again, or you might not do something, but you think something, or you might not act a certain way, but you feel a certain way. Whatever it is, or then you just might act and just, you know, beat the snot out of somebody. I don't know, whatever you do, anger, lust, um, coveting, coveting, all the things that the human heart drives us every day that we're, we're in a wrestling match with. Penance is the means by which we can restore ourselves and bring our spiritual order back into relationship with God. It's repentance. Penance is a sacrament. So this would be where you would go and confess. And in that confession, there would be certain exchanges that take place where you are, show that contrition, you demonstrate that contrition to erase a heavenly penalty, an eternal penalty. All right? And these acts of contrition could take various forms. They could be minor. They could be great. You know, uh, they took various forms. But where they became particularly controversial uh, in the Reformation, here is... Uh, Here's the catechism, the Catholic catechism. It's the oral confession of one's sins to a priest, the penitential acceptance and eventual completion of, uh, of acts of satisfaction, and then absolution. That's what penance is. All right? And you've got to put on your, your history cap here. You've got to be, use your imagination here. Uh, in, in, in the early 1500s, uh, the church itself has already just gone through this, a divided papacy, and then an argument over who really is Pope. Rome is teetering in terms of its ability to sustain its authority, its culture, not just its uh, spiritual authority, but its cultural authority as well in parts of Europe because of this. And now we've introduced into this uh, the relationship of the penance to the indulgence. 
Now, let me just say a word about an indulgence. All right, an indulgence isn't, we, we, we tend to think an indulgence is where the money, uh, an exchange of money. It is, it becomes that, but an indulgence can actually be an, a kind of exchange of anything. It's the remission of a temporal punishment due to sins, where, uh, whose guilt has been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions. Is everybody memorizing this as we go? Through action of the church, which as a minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury and satisfaction of Christ and the saints. It removes all, either part or all of temporal punishment due to sin. Penance is the act of repentance. It's the act of turning away. The indulgence is the exchange that takes place, you see. The exchange that makes the sin go away. All right? Uh, so many Hail Marys. Walk on your knees up the steps of St. Peter's. Are you following me? I mean, these are things from history that, that actually happen. Um, you know, um, how about this, says Pope Leo X. Just pay us. <laughs> you see, Leo X comes along. He's, at, he's out of the Medici family. And for all of us in the Anglican tradition, when, our, when critics say, oh, how could you be a part of a church that was so involved in the hideous politics? The Medici family is all you have to reply. <laughs> the Borghese's, the Farnese's. Rome is deeply embedded <laughs> in the politics of its age as well. Nobody here gets out clean, okay? It's history. So... Um, Leo X issues a proclamation, who, and it's a complicated story. I don't want to go too far with it, but we had a guy up called Albert of Brandenburg who wanted a, he had one bishopric, he wanted another one in Mainz, and he struck a deal with a bank to borrow the money to buy the bishopric from the Pope, and the Pope says, great, how are we going to pay this off? And by the way, we need to refurbish St. Peter's while we're at it. It's looking a little rusty. You know what? Let's just let's just start getting the Germans to pay this off. And they issue the the indulgence then, that exchange takes on a monetary, it's montanized <laughs> to, you know, for the bankers in the room. It actually becomes a way of paying off. Okay. This is not popular in Germany. It's not like everyone said, what a great idea. Uh, it was actually quite disturbing. But then how many people are educated enough to address it at the time? Was monetization an option or a requirement? It was uh, an option, but the wealthier you were. And it was a man named Tetzel becomes the agent who goes into northern Germany basically selling the idea of the indulgence. It becomes a marketing campaign. It's the first church growth movement. And they did get a lot out of it. If you've been to St. Peter's, it's pretty impressive. And, <laughs> but you, yeah. you could be forgiven yes. it if you Yes, correct. To you could be. It wasn't a requirement to your answer, especially because you have multiple, multiple people who just couldn't afford that, right? That's just not something. But it was, it was a campaign is what it was. Who challenges this? You already know the story. It's Martin Luther who challenges this, right? He challenges this in 1517. He takes Tetzel head on in a debate. He doesn't just challenge it, though, in terms of the practice, which I think enough people would have disagreed with. Like, this is just not savory. You know, this is, come on. Luther challenges it on theological grounds after working 
a number of years through the works of the Psalms and Galatians and other areas of Scripture. So Luther says, in good German fashion, hold my beer. And he walks out there and says, I'm now going to take this on. Literally, probably, because Luther liked beer. So he walks out and he takes on Tetzel and he begins to address this publicly. And that's the famous 99 Theses that he puts on the, on the door of the cathedral. That's part of the story that gets things going. Pope Leo promptly gets word of this and says, Germans, I mean, what are we going to do? You know, they're, they're, it's okay. It's another German monk in northern Germany causing problems. They've been doing it for 500 years now. Who, who cares? And he ignores it, which gives the Reformation time. It gives the teaching time to percolate, to ferment, so to speak. And that's precisely what it does until it becomes a crisis. All right? So 1517 is sort of the... the you know, Luther, uh, you know, charging in. 1520, though, is when we began to get, uh, is the year I would want you to know. Because 1520 is when he produces three of the most famous treatises in the history of Christianity. And, and I have them up here right now. All right. And why is this important? It's because now this is the, probably the first, we had a couple of other guys, Zwingli, uh, Butzer, down in Switzerland and such. But Luther, and they're important, I, I, but for time's sake, I want to focus here because it's these three letters that begin to say, no, no, we have a theological program. At this point, Luther recognizes three years in, the church is not going to go along with reform. It's not going to happen. He thought it could because the church had reformed in the past. Remember the investiture contest? The, 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 the church had made adjustments, the papal revolution, all across its history. It was believed this could be another adjustment in the life of the church. It's not. Luther issues in October, fall of 1523, very famous letters to the Christian nobility of, of the German nation. He basically says, the Pope's not going to do this. Germany's got to do it. We need you. We need your protection over our property, over our monasteries, over our bishoprics. On the Babylonian captivity, he actually uh, challenges Rome directly on the seven sacraments. This is the famous part where he says, from Scripture, he could only justify two, and they don't operate ex opere operato. They don't operate just because they operate. Now sit down. <laughs> They don't work automatically. Faith and sacraments go together. There's a relationship, he says. And finally, on the freedom of the Christian is where we get the famous introduction to the solas of Scripture, of Protestantism, <laughs> how and how one is to live the Christian life. There's a bit of a paradox, if not an irony, in that there are five onlys, um, <laughs> alones, but... But I think it, Luther never was one for consistency. Didn't really care. He made his point. Uh, if you ever read the streets, I make my students, my students have to read this for one of their freshman classes. I make them read this particular essay. It's, very, it's not long. Uh, but here he, he doesn't, he introduces the logic of why scripture first, why faith, how does grace in Christ, how they're all connected together, and that these things are what ultimately the church uh, convey the grace of God, not the sacraments. It's not the institution, so to speak. So 1520, 
What is Luther's big takeaway? What is the big takeaway? It's that the righteousness of Christ is not infused, this was their language, through the sacramental order of the church. Rather, it is imputed by grace through faith. And on this hangs all of the Protestant Reformation, right here. Um, it is how God communicates and brings about salvation to a fallen sinner. So that is my, my, the jump point, the starting point that we want to reflect on. How is righteousness brought to the believer? It's impu- it, it is imputed. We are united with Christ by, an act, by a mysterious act of grace that brings us into union, that faith is quickened by the same God who we're being united with, right? There's a synergism is the word they used to this. Okay, that's one figure. Who is our next figure? And I apologize, there's a lot of questions I know, and, but, but I made some really nice slides here, and I just want to show you all of them. So who's our next guy? <coughs> Excellent, you can go. That is Calvin, right? Calvin, why is Calvin important? Calvin is our next major figure. I'm skipping the minor figures. Well, one, he is the first great systematizer of the Protestant faith. He takes the collection of teaching the Bible, and he's not ordained. Calvin's a lawyer. He's a French lawyer. And we don't know exactly how he came to Protestantism, but he did. And he travails through Strasbourg, down, ends up in Geneva, gets kicked out of Geneva, goes back to Strasbourg, comes back. He's got a tumultuous kind of way about him. But he did bring certain characteristics I would say every Christian should know. He does certain things. One is he wrote the Institutes. I mean, that alone, the fact that Protestants had a a mind such as his to bring a kind of systematic order to Scripture, to say this is what the Scriptures teach about blank, the Trinity, God, justification, salvation. We hadn't, Protestants had not had that to this point. It goes through four editions. Calvin tells us that we have what he calls the census divinitatis, that we are made in God's image. We do possess God's image. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.